You called me a scanner. What is that? Freak of nature, born with a certain form of ESP. The derangement of the synapses, which we call telepathy. Could be a disease, possibly, or a result of radiation. We don't really know why. Who are you? My name is Dr. Paul Ruth. I'm a psychopharmacist by trade, specializing in the phenomenon of scanners. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's no degree partial. It's a degree Okay, so you need to get yourself into a, a hands-free position just for long enough to, to clap your hands together once. You do that? All right. Okay. <laughs> I know what the tripod on that little uh, snowball is like, and I think it's probably going to fall over when you clap your hands, but that's fine. All right. Let's be happy All right, ready? Three, two, one. Still standing. Science. Superb. Big audio science. All right. And we're recording. And we're recording. I, I should have asked you that. That's what, a, that's what a pro would do. I assumed that I should start recording before the clap. That was good. See? Uh, Look at this. Outstanding. Yeah. It's, that's the kind of journalistic instincts that's going to take you far. Uh, <laughs> one of us does this for a living, and it, it ain't me. Mm-hmm. Um, Glenn. Chris. You are 53 years old, Mr. Weldon. Okay. Why are you such a derelict? Such a piece of human junk. Uh-huh. The answer is simple. You're a podcaster. Yeah, okay, see? And that has been the source of all your agony. But I will show you now that it can also be a source of great power. Yeah, I think he, he hits the R's here. I think he does. I think he's either doing, trying to do a, I was going to say American, but uh, uh, the, the word they use in the film is North American accent. Mm. Oh, oh no, yeah. this, this movie is definitely super American, trying real hard to... Yeah. Uh, or he's just reverting back to his natural Irish hard R's. Um, yeah, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. But uh, he is—he he is serving you some McGowan here, and that's—that's that's what this is all about, isn't it? Good. That's what I want to say to you. Uh, and what I want to say to you is, welcome to our psychic gymnasium. <laughs> oh, well, I love to be in a psychic gymnasium. My favorite kind of gymnasium. Um, and I'm glad also that you highlighted that line, which I wrote down as the MVP by far of yep. any line in that movie. So, Absolutely. Yeah, why are you such a derelict? Oh, good. Well, my, I can only do two impressions, <laughs> one of which is like an old-timey news person, and the other of which is Watto from the Star Wars prequels, which I, of course, can't in good <laughs> conscience do. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Problematic. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs>
but the old timey radio person, uh, the old timey radio person is perfectly fine. Let's hear a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm Catherine Hepburn. No, uh, no, not an old timey radio. Like uh, my newspaper, sweetheart. We're going down to the pathways. <laughs> If I'd had a sentence in mind to say, it would have been so no, much better. Good. It's good. It's all, it's all good. right. It's all no, good. no, we can uh, feed you some things it's later. It's the attitude that makes it. It's the attitude. That makes right. It. All right. Yeah. One more. So, so we're, we're going to do this the scanner way. I'm going to suck your brains dry. That's it. I've emptied the clip all in the first few minutes. Shot my wad way early, as this movie does. With the memeable exploding head you're talking about here. I am. So this this film, which by the way is David Cronenberg's Scanners mm-hmm. from 1981. It is a specimen of a particular subgenre of genre movie that I like a lot. It is the movie that is showing us a, a sliver, a tiny facet of a much larger, much more epic story for pennies on the dollar, super cheaply made, kind of uh, scrappy little genre movie like The Terminator, uh, which I, you know, a couple years after this, also made by a Canadian director, mm-hmm. um, which I, I obviously I think is more successful than this, but they are of the same ilk. There is a familial resemblance among them. What are you? What are you pointing well, to? I'm pointing, pointing at the, to the Faustino just flushed the toilet. Okay, <laughs> good. But well, I'm glad the listeners will now know. The so that's that's know. uh that's yep. good. I I want everyone to know that uh, your husband's kidneys work as they should. Yeah, he's trying to create an immersive 3D soundscape for all your <laughs> listeners. <laughs> that's right. That's right. This is 4D going on here. Uh-huh. <laughs> In smellovision. Yep. <laughs> What I was when you have your your most gruesome and and most memorable visual effect right at the top, and I, I did look at the time code, the exploding head that people who have not seen this movie have likely seen if they participate in in social media. Yeah. Poor fools! It comes at minute thirteen, and the movie comes in at uh, like one one forty five, one fifty, something like that. It uh, had me thinking of like in in RoboCop, by which of course I mean the. 87 Verhoeven original RoboCop, the only one that matters. If the biggest effect sequence in that movie was when Ed 209 blows away Mr. Kinney on the conference table at Omni Consumer Products, and then that's it. Like, all we get for the rest of the movie in terms of fireworks is uh, gas station blows up. That actually does happen in RoboCop. Um, some kind of desultory car chases, and then... Um, Someone catches on fire. Yeah, like, yeah a couple <laughs> there, people catch fire. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And a, dude yeah, a computer gets ways. absolutely wrecked. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's true. Uh, well, we'll <laughs> that does happen. Yeah, so we, we come to learn that the uh, character played by Stephen Lack. Mm. Not in, not yeah, in named that. for how much charisma he has. Oh, my God. We'll talk. Yeah. No, we, we learn that he is a scanner. And possibly also a printer, a copier, and a fax machine, because he is definitely a modem. Yeah. That is what the uh, exciting third act of Scanners tells us. But what the hell is even happening here? Why are, well, why are we talking about Scanners? Wait a minute, let's just back up for a second. You know who might disagree with your uh, shoot your wad too early theory is one Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. Heard of Marion Crane, mm. Chris? Hmm? What are you saying, Glenn? You saying I stink? I need a shower? <laughs> need a shower? Huh? Huh? Like, the idea is that that scene casts a shadow over the rest of the film, so you're dreading what else could happen. Uh, I don't think it works, um, but, but that's the Understood, theory. but then, uh, yeah, but then, like, every time one person squints at another person for the rest of the movie, you keep waiting for their head to explode, and then they just fly backwards yeah, there is that. into a, you know, a styrofoam door, or they, uh, you know, some, like, flame gel on their skin erupts. Or... I'm just saying there's a cinematic theory at work, I think. No, I see, I see what you're saying. I, I, I feel like one. the whole idea that the expectation has been created that anyone's head could explode at any time <laughs> could be, 
you know, potent and suspenseful. But it's like when you hear the ending of a book, but you're not right about it. Like when I read Lolita's, I mean, spoilers for a uh, uh -huh. decades-old work, <laughs> I was convinced he was going to murder her at the end. And I kept right. being like, when's he going to murder her? And the entire book was ruined because I kept being like, when's he going to murder Lolita? <laughs> and so I got to the end. I'm like, well, he didn't murder her. And that's sort of how I felt about Scanners. I'm like, only a single head explodes in this whole movie, except yep. for that yeah. practical effect at the end. What a waste. Yeah. I mean, Scanners only gives you one head. Lolita at least gives you two Humberts. Okay. One right after okay. the other. All right. It is, it is a dual Humbert feature, stereo. Hum, okay. All right. Sorry, why are we talking about Scanners? It's, it's a good question, Chris. Well, okay. There is a simple answer, Glenn mm -hmm. and, and Petri, whom we'll introduce in a moment. I was going to say. We're, now that we're using non-Christian family names, I guess. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what last names are. And, and that is that in 1966, Patrick McGowan starred the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident, scratch that, most residents are referred to only by a number, surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time and innately and unambiguously and lava-lampedly of its time. That short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. Furthermore, oh. in 1981, Patrick McGowan, recently the scene-stealing malefactor of Escape from Alcatraz and the co-star with Lee Van Cleef of the TV movie The Hard Way, wherein he played a character named John Connor, I already mentioned the Terminator here, mm -hmm. accepted top billing in a low-budget Canadian sci-fi thriller written and directed by body horror auteur David Cronenberg, a film in which McGowan would star as Dr. Ruth. Right. Not top billing, third billing. <laughs> But just, just keep, keep the going. movie is called Patrick McGowan in Scanners. I don't know if you watch, but his okay. name, it, it, it's, right. he, he's the only one who gets the in. It's a, I'm, I'm going to call that top billing. Mm. I mean, this is in the same way that it's Marvel, Marvel's Avengers or Marvel presents the Avengers Assemble. This is Patrick McGowan in Scanners starring Patrick McGowan. Based on not a novel by by not Patrick McGowan, Cronenberg uh, would go on to make more than a dozen other films and go on to far greater critical and commercial success. But none of his other films would live on as a GIF. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time and innately and unambiguously, and Tim Hortons elastically Canadian. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. That movie was called Scanners. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Guys, is uh, uh, <laughs> is this a bad movie? I kind of think this is a bad movie. Well. I have to say, I went into it excited to have seen Scanners, and that was still how I felt after I'd seen it. I was excited to have seen Scanners. I like a movie where you don't care too much about the characters, and you can just notice things that are going on in the background. I feel like it's restful, um, you know, not to have to get too invested in like, oh, like this guy, what's going on with him? Like, will he get his goal? Like, are there family relationships that are going to be revealed that are going to be important? Who knows? It's sort of how I felt right. with, like, Rise of Skywalker. I'm like, I could care less that these people are related to each other, but I guess the movie wants to tell me. But yep. That's a good point. <laughs> yes. No, I, I, I have to defend any movie and where, where it ends with someone being asked their name. No, no, your full name. No, say your name. I, what's your last name? What's your address, uh, please? <laughs> I do love the scene where Sean Connery asks Andy Garcia that in The Untouchables. What's your real name? That is my real name. Nah. What was it before you changed it? But it's a different vibe, different thing, different reasoning. And who are we even asking if this is a, this is a bad movie? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I'm a disembodied voice this. at this point. Well, we're all disembodied voices. But, but a disennamed some... voice. Yes, nameless. 
Oh, boy. Well, the peculiar intersection of body horror and Canada left us with no one to call but a Wisconsin-born, Georgetown-reared, Harvard-University-educated playwright, best known for her humor columns and occasional outrage undiluted by humor columns in the Washington Post. I met her through her participation in the Capitol Fringe Festival over several years in 2014. My best gal, Rachel Mantufel, played the lead in a very sweet-natured sex comedy called The Campsite Rule, named for the Dan Savage, uh, I guess, sexual not hygiene, relationship hygiene Ethic, concept. yeah. Yes. Moray? No, that's an eel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, sexual moray eels. Uh-huh. Certainly the subject of, if not a David Cronenberg film, then a Guillermo del Toro film. Certainly. I once uh, attended one of your birthday parties where the entertainment was, I, I can't remember if it was a Grover Cleveland impersonator or a Woodrow Wilson impersonator. It was a Woodrow Wilson impersonator. He, he did six impersonations, and I regret not do, getting his Joseph from the Bible, just because I, that raised so many questions. <laughs> but he was really eager to do Woodrow Wilson, and he had a lot of fun facts to share. And, you know, I feel like you only have a Wilson birthday once. So anyway, we, we, we learned a lot and we came away feeling that Woodrow Wilson's been pretty accurately assessed by history. Okay. <laughs> we, we did. We did. In the years since, she has published the books A Field Guide to Awkward Silences and Nothing is Wrong and Here is Why. She created the Twitter account, Emo Kylo Ren, oh. and scripted She-Hulk Annual Number 1 for Marvel Comics. Yeah. You're the most overqualified person we've ever had on the show, <laughs> Alexandra Petri. Welcome, welcome, welcome to a degree... Absolute. Welcome. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me on A Degree Absolute. I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to watch yes. movies. We've welcomed you, and now we must welcome everyone else to the Private Personal by Hand Punch Card Driven Podcast, where we take this unclassifiable and unclassifiable television series, The Prisoner, and related documents, and stare at one another, or else close our eyes and move our jaws mm-hmm. in sort of a creepy, silent way. And then what do we do, Glenn? Well, here's the thing, Chris. If whether or not we decide to listen to the will of the people and actually keep this strained oh. opening, um, <laughs> we should at least cut the part where we have to explain to our guest what the deal is, because that is going to get just as tired. She's much smarter than we are, Glenn. And by the way, since you're still on this uh, let's let's cut the preamble thing, I just want to just want to throw out a couple numbers for you. Obviously, uh, Petri is a, a student of, of history. If I were to say to you, Harry Truman, John F. Kennedy, and George H.W. Bush, and strangely also George W. Bush, what would uh, what would those four presidents have in common? You think? Well, they all have uh, prominent middle initials. Oh, that's good. True, true, true. That's good. That's yes, good. yes. That's what I'm going to go with. Jesus H. Christ. That is a perfectly rational explanation. No, Glenn. Those are actually the only four presidents since Gallup started tracking presidential approval to actually have a higher high, not an average, eh, but this is their highest measured approval rating. Those are the only four presidents who ever, at any point in their presidencies, got a higher approval rating than our preamble. Yeah. Which, uh, once again, the Twitter poll gave it 81%. Yeah, that's 81%, Glenn. Tens of people. We can't, we can't, we can't deny the voice of tens of people. Uh, we can't. Alexander, have you ever seen The Prisoner? I still haven't. Okay. But based on his performance in Scanners, I now want to. <laughs> no, that's, that's good. You're going to get... Okay, well... If he's, a, he's at a six here, he's at, a, he's at an 11 in The Prisoner. So. Oh, he, man. He I can't also... even imagine what an 11 would be like if that's a yeah. six. Yeah. Uh, and Scanners doesn't really give you an opportunity to appreciate how mean he is to women yeah, most that's of the time. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, that not, not true. like not like predatory, not creepy, just just mean, like <laughs> pointlessly mean. Mm-hmm. Anyway, at this uh, at the top here, Alexander, we kind of do this. We push it. We file it because because a famous 
thing from the prisoner is I will not be pushed filed the next stamp brief debriefed or numbered so uh, week after week we trot this out and uh, here it goes clop 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 yep we push it like we're compelling a doctor to shoot himself up with ephemeral now we uh, we're supposed to rate that on a scale of six out of six one to six I'm gonna I'm gonna start it at a three because I feel like we'll either go up or down and it'll be clear what I think of the subsequent ones. Oh, we're going down. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I think yeah, it's it's relevant to the topic at hand and is an analogy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that metric. <laughs> I would keep that metric. We file it like a consec shipping invoice. Hmm. I'm giving out a four. No, no, uh, four. Okay, four. I'm yes, creeping that up. Consensus four. Bloom is off the rose I mean, a little we bit. See, but, we uh, see the dude. We see Ironside filling out a little form there on a clipboard. I, I imagine the shipping invoice. Famously. Yeah. I mean, they, I knew him for his invoice preparation in, you know, Top Gun and Total Recall and like the, the Alien Invasion series. Yeah, no, the invoice of a generation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's why we hire. <laughs> that's why we hire. <laughs> Old and, uh, Ironside. Um, All right. We index it like a Consec shipping invoice. <laughs> okay, five. I like this concept. You know what? I was going to do this with library books because it did it occurred to me they, they pretty much all work for library books. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that would just be a passive aggressive way of doing it. But since I have become the defender of the preamble, I'm going to give you a three for that, Glenn. That's okay. a little bitchy. Okay, I appreciate that. We stamp by the way, it. three is the lowest grade I've ever given you. Is it really? Oh, and, uh, <laughs> I cannot say the yeah. same thing. Uh, we stamp it like a consec shipping invoice. Could you tell I was getting tired? Oh, <laughs> you can't even change the document. You can't even make it a redacted consec. No, I'm still still a five. I like statement. this bit. I appreciate that. The uh, the metric for me is aptness, aptness, and pithiness. Uh, this get this next one is not. I can't do it. So I have to go. We brief it like we're explaining to Cameron Vale that scanners are a whole thing. We're briefing it. I'm back to a three. I was hoping it would be another invoice joke. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't make it work. Couldn't make it work. Tried to make it work. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a three, Glenn. Okay. That's a, that's a that's a gentleman's three. Okay. <laughs> we debrief it like we're reviewing a security breach at a Consec board meeting. They, they got they got debriefed in that. Uh, yeah. They they did. Yep. They did. I, I'm still a three. By I'm still hovering at three. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I, I wish I could revisit the the mountaintop that was the concept shipping invoice, but I just couldn't work it in. I'll give you a four for that one. Okay. Because that, that scene where we meet the, uh, like, Frank Langella-looking yeah. new security chief. I guess he's Canada's. He's the Frank Langella you get when you can't get Frank Langella. Yeah, yeah. And we <laughs> number it like we're counting the amount of scanners in North America, which is 236. 236 scanners in North America, apparently. It's a number. Yeah, I like it. It's a number. I'm going to give that a solid four. As surely as Carol Churchill's play, that is a number. Yeah, four. I'll give it a four. Okay. Fair. All right, fine. Okay. Slightly above average, Glenn. Okay. You, you notice the, the conspicuous absence of any negative grades? Yeah, I in, did. Uh, I did. Of, any, of any double-digit negative? Okay. Well, you need a certain capacity for, for cruelty okay. to, uh, to do that, and, uh, and I lack that capacity. Okay. So, Alexander, you're wondering if I should be worried that we've been doing this for 27 minutes, <laughs> and we haven't <laughs> talked about the first scene in the film yet. Um, I would say, yeah. 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 Be a little... A little word. Yeah, well, well, I'm assuming we won't do a minute per minute, but I could no. be wrong. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, and, yes, this you know, is a scanner's minute. I'll just say that the cover of this videotape, this VHS, was something I passed in the uh, the West Goshen blockbuster video whenever I'd go. It scared 
the hell out of me. It is the... Have you seen the poster for this movie? The the front of the... Yeah, the poster's really scary. It is deeply unsettling, It I, which made me think this film would be uh, uh, approximately one fuck-ton scarier than it actually turns out to be. <laughs> um, but I, I agree. That's a good unit. Yeah. Uh, what did you guys think? There's a disconnect between that image, which actually occurs in the film, and one of the last shots Right, the film. and it's not the ostensible lead... Stephen Lack, no. and it's certainly not Patrick McGowan yeah. of Patrick McGowan and Scanners fame. It's uh, it's old Ironsides with his his blanked out eyes, mm-hmm. and I am clicking around trying to find the tab I had open with the the Scanners poster in it because this movie has not one, not two, but but three taglines on the poster. Oh. <laughs> it's oh. like it's a head and a deck kind of situation. One of them, I guess, would be like the slug line of the movie. You know, one of them would be the little like TV guide synopsis. It, it, it made me nostalgic for the age of text-heavy <laughs> movie posters that also had a creepy illustration on them. No, I, I agree. Going into it, I thought it was going to be much scarier than it was. I made a point of watching it during the daytime with the lights yep. on. And then I was Me like, too. well, this was completely superfluous. It was. <laughs> yeah, it was not. Yeah, because as, as you say, they blew their wad very early on the scares, which I appreciated as a viewer who didn't have mm-hmm. to watch any more heads blow up. But I was also like, <laughs> I'm kind of here for the heads now. Yeah. See, that's a thing. That's the, that's the calculus. And I, I think he uh, screwed the calculus. Uh, and again, you mentioned he gets top billing here. If we're going by the screen, what comes up on the screen, Jennifer O'Neill gets top billing. She doesn't appear in this film until 36 minutes in. But she is the lead actor, followed by uh, Stephen Lack, followed by Patrick McGowan. Now, Patrick right. McGowan got second billing in Escape from Alcatraz, despite having only 10 minutes of screen time. A lot. Yeah. There were a lot of lesser-known actors who were featured in that film more prominently and they, you know, were relegated to below second billing. Right. I don't know anything about this, Alexander, maybe you do, but like how does Steve how does a Stephen Lack <laughs> <laughs> score billing over a venerated at one time international star Patrick McGowan? Well, he is in more of the movie. As somebody who doesn't know exactly how the billing works, maybe he just had a really efficient agent who was like, listen, I just look at the yeah. movie. I see a lot of my client, Stephen Lack. I don't see a lot of your client, Patrick McGowan. Yep. And this guy was real efficient. And he got his way. That's sort of... I, I think it's possible that he may have been hooked up with his buddy Alexis Canner's agent because on the Scanner's movie poster, although his name does appear third, Glenn, it is like Alexis Canner in Fallout. Boxed. Boxed. All right. McGowan has the little box around his name. Okay, so so I found the poster. Okay. You get so much information about scanners while you're while you're looking, you know, whatever you can infer from this this flaming Michael Ironside who's wearing a, a vest like he had a three piece suit on yeah, in the yeah, yeah. that yeah. made okay, okay. one of the best yeah. things about the movie are is the are is the vests. It's the three piece suits. There are 4 billion people on Earth, 237 are scanners. Nope. They have the most terrifying powers ever created, and they are winning. Dang. Okay. That's more information than the movie gave me. (laughs) Yep. That information is atop his flaming, melting head. And then you have to go all the way down to his left elbow to get to 10 seconds. The pain begins. 15 seconds. You can't breathe. 20 seconds. You explode. Hmm. I wish Hmm. that had been in the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm loving this poster. Didn't really ever get to the 22nd mark. You know, we, we, need, we need more people to get to the 22nd uh, mark. And then you have to go all the way below the title to, to get the uh, somewhat redundant um, postscript, Their Thoughts Can Kill. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they didn't tell you the the, the, the vector for, you know, how, how they can 
kill you. That's true. Um, they just gave you the countdown. They just gave you the countdown, right? That, yep. that could be anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a uh, incredibly Canadian production. Uh, <laughs> according to Wikipedia, one of the first to compete in the American box office. Uh, it is also uh, very much a 1981 production with the brown and the beige and the brown and the beige and the brown. It is uh-huh. deeply uh, 1981. The food court alone will just catapult <laughs> a 53-year-old man back to his... He will hark back to his childhood, hanging out at food courts back when food courts were a thing. Uh, I loved this mall. Um, it, it was the most mall that a mall could be. I kept looking for a Suncoast video or whatnot. I didn't really see too many familiar uh, places. Did you guys catch any store names? I was trying to pick out some some fast food joints mm-hmm. or, or or something. What I what I really appreciated about the sequence is I like it when someone in a movie does a a modest stunt that I could actually do. Mm-hmm. Like I think jumping on the side of the escalator and just holding on to the handrail while it slowly pulls you yep. up. I, I could probably do that. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's, it's not a great bit to hang an action sequence on, but but I think I could do it. And I got two bad shoulders. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. It seemed attainable, which made him approachable and relatable in a way that like somebody doing yeah. a Tom Cruise level stunt might not have been to the viewer. Right. I don't bathe in stem cells harvested from, you know, Sea Org volunteers every night. So, uh, right, I don't have all the, the tools that Cruz has. but Allegedly. Allegedly, Chris. <laughs> I, I think I could compete with lack. I have no, no lack of, no surfeit of confidence. No, surfeit <laughs> is, is an excess. No dearth. No dearth of confidence in that regard. Yeah, this is a really half-hearted, half-assed. <laughs> I know. It needs to be a really fully-assed chase scene, and it is yep. not one. <laughs> um, it is the first time you notice how much ADR there is in this film. This film is 80% ADR, uh, which is one reason, I think, why Mr. Stephen Lack, uh, our, our lead character, uh, Cameron, uh, I, I think his performance lacks because he is doing so much of it in a booth somewhere in Ottawa. You know, it's just... <laughs> it. it his affect is um, not strong, but and he's not making a lot of really bold choices, but his voice is so flat. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why he he, he just gets eaten up by this film. Yeah, I, I did, as, as is my, my want for looking at movies from a, a certain era. I did look up Ebert's review. I don't know why I always oh, go to Ebert. I always I don't do, consider yeah. Ebert. Okay, and why do we do that? He's not Janet Maislin, you know, he's, he, he's not Pauline Kael. I wouldn't say he was like the dominant prose voice on movies and but uh for some but well his his reviews are always easy to find yeah. and he reviewed everything that came out mm-hmm. so uh like you're not gonna not find an ebert review um six paragraphs does not contain the names of any actors <laughs> there are no actors named in his review uh which you know goes to just show you i am very much of the school of criticism like you don't it's not a fucking report card you don't have to address every aspect of the production you know just talk about the things that were memorable to you uh, and and i guess in ebert's case that's what he did that was not the performances <laughs> so. yeah no i also always go to ebert because it's sort of a treat when it's like i've seen a movie from when he was around just to get to see what his mind thought about it just because i feel like he's one of the critics where i do know how his taste maps on to my viewing experience so i'm like oh like that another data point now i know if he says that was good then i'll think maybe it was good but mm-hmm. i don't know I, at first i was watching it and i'm like they're doing it in this sort of like uncanny valley where it's supposed to be like maybe new york but maybe america but maybe not and then I'm like oh no they filmed it in canada that's that's what was happening here this is not yep. like a conscious uh choice but i think <laughs> with stephen lack it's 
unfortunate that he's not a more engaging presence because they at one point that when our top billed actress is saying, "Well, he's you're barely human." And you, you, the viewer, shouldn't think, yeah, I agree with that assessment. <laughs> but I, I did. I'm like, yeah, I guess he's been on ice for a long time. I mean, spoilers, we haven't described what the plot is. But yeah, he he had all the sort of charisma and instant human connection of somebody who had definitely been on ice for the majority of his life, not learning how to speak like a human being. I feel like that's yeah. too harsh. No, he, he like he does talk correctly, but you kept feeling like he was in a commercial. Yeah, yeah, a Mentos commercial on top of that. There's something uncanny <laughs> about it. There's something like, what is going on here? This isn't quite right. Um, and they do everything they can to make him sympathetic. They introduce him shambling in in a trench coat, just like Columbo, as a homeless dude, an unhoused dude, uh, who, you know, uh, makes a woman go all squirrely because she said a bad thing about him, or maybe not. that's not why. He gets darted. He is unwittingly uh, hearing their thoughts, right? right? He's hearing that they're disgusted by him. Although they say what they say out loud, so it's like he's, it's not like he's actually reading their minds because she says what she says out loud, but, you know, small, small. Okay, maybe small that's why, I, I don't know. It was the, the instance in which I was going to say, okay, well, we can forgive the ADR when it's telepathy, but yeah, uh, nope. Turns <laughs> out, I just nope. got confused about that. <laughs> Um, we cut to a different place after he gets darted. Uh, it's a classroom setting. Uh, <laughs> Meanwhile, in a different place. I would like to scan all of you in this room, one at a time. I, I must remind you that the uh, scanning experience is usually a painful one. And from the moment you see this dude's Ooh. face, if you are on social media, you know what's coming because you've seen this right. guy's face before, but you've only seen like a second of it before it becomes bolognese. This actor has a name worthy of his legend, Louis Del Grande. Aww. That is mm. this man's name. That's great. That's great. Of the head blown up <laughs> Gran- Del Grandes <laughs> of Toronto. At this point, I'd like to call for volunteers. The effect here is what we will come to learn in later years is basically any CGI, Anyone mental or magical, you know, battle where just two people, two actors, two perfectly respectable actors make faces at each other for a while, maybe make some gestures, while later on CGI and music and sound fills in everything. Here it's just the sound. Now the music does some work here. I think the score does some work here too. Howard Shore score. God, yeah, other than David Cronenberg, he's like, well, I I guess Cronenberg and Michael Ironside and Howard Shore are the three who are going to go on to greater fame after this. So Michael Ironside is a guy who's infiltrated this consec who are trying to, I don't know what, it doesn't matter, um, and he turns the dudes... No, that does matter. They're weaponizing the scanners. This is their trade. Like they're one of those shady defense contractors or something, and they're they're trying to uh, exploit psychic people. What what does their director say in the scene with uh, with Patty McGee? These he calls them curiosity, psychic curiosity, creatures. He calls them creatures I want you to come with me. I didn't do anything. I said I want you to come with me. So uh, Michael Ironside gets captured. He gets shot with ephemeral. Or does he? Because he actually makes the doctor shoot somebody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, He then forces a dude to drive into a wall. He makes another dude kill his colleague and then himself. And then we cut to uh, Dr. Paul Ruth, played by the great Patty McGee. (laughs) 
Um, yes. Slumping in a chair. Dispensing sex advice yes. uh, to, to the other board members Dr. at the Ruth, exactly. Corporation. There, there's sorry. no way yeah. in 1981 you're not thinking about Dr. Ruth. Uh, <laughs> I, but again. But when you think of Patrick McGowan. <laughs> you think. <laughs> you, you think like enforced celibacy, but. Uh... Yeah, that would be a radio show worth listening to. Him just doing his best. <laughs> Dr. Ruth. Just reading verbatim. That's right. Orgasm. One thing we have learned on this this podcast, uh, Petri, is that there were lots of problems between uh, McGowan and his script editor on The Prisoner because he kept commissioning these scripts that would have romantic subplots for McGowan's character number six. And McGowan was like, nope, 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 would not kiss an actor on screen, would only reluctantly even engage in flirtation, just, just like shut any hint of that right down. And we're not talking about explicit... You know, depictions of, of sex or romance, just like even flirtatiousness, like, nope, 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 nope. He is just mean and asexual. That's why it's awesome that he's named Dr. Ruth in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> in my study of the situation, I've come to the conclusion that there is a scanner underground developed in North America. It has an organization, it's well motivated. It has a leader. Now that's ridiculous, Doctor. You can't get two of them to sit in the same room together without going berserk. You're making a very provocative allegation, Dr. Ruth. Who controls this group? If you study the descriptions of this report, you will find that you probably met him last night. His name is Darrell Rebuck. And he was on our list. This is uh, so we learned that Michael Ironside, uh, the guy who infiltrated Consec, whatever the hell, uh, is called Daryl Revok. And Revok is not a last name that anybody has. Can we agree? It's not a real name, Revok. It's 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 a name if you're a GI Joe character, maybe, but it's not it's not an actual name. Uh, I had a GI Joe named Bivouac. Yeah, pretty close. So, pretty close. Good name. Uh, and he does get to say his own name at one point in the film's climax, mm. and he really sells it then. Uh, he leaves a scanner underground, He and Dr. Ruth wants to send Vale to infiltrate that underground because uh, what they have is a derangement of the synapse. Um, uh, he is, Dr. Ruth turns out to be a psychopharmacologist who developed ephemeral as a scan suppressant, and we see a, a film strip. Well, it's, it's a film. I wanted it to be a film strip. I wanted it to be like, boop, turn it, turn it, boop, <laughs> one of those things. Uh, oh, yeah, with the thing, yeah, to tell you yeah, when. Yeah, exactly. Um of, of Revok at an institution after he drilled into his head. This is obviously trying to send you some Manson vibes. You're trying to get yeah. some Manson vibes in this. But now so we he, finally... He's sharpied a little, like, a third eye on his bandage on his forehead. That's cool. I mean, that's a yep. memorable... Yeah, yeah, no, because he wanted it... It's a door, but he, if he makes it an eye, they won't know it's a door. Right. I think. Yeah. 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 I, was, I was like, this is cool. And then okay. the next hour and 20 minutes of the movie, <laughs> we're just... Well, this is where we finally start to spend some time with Stephen Lack as Cameron Vale, who is, as we have mentioned, pretty bad, just wooden. He is also, not for nothing, what I would call Canadian handsome, which is (laughs) much less handsome than L.A. handsome. A bit, like a skosh less handsome than New York handsome, but about on par with Chicago handsome. Are we we agreed on this? Is that a... We agree on this no, metric. no. I'm gonna I have to make... think about this a great deal for like months at a time, and then I'll come back with a detailed chart. <laughs> okay, assessing. Okay. Uh, all right, Petri is open to to contemplating this uh, theory and presenting her conclusions later. I'm going to reject it outright. Okay, immediately, but pray continue. Doctor Ruth has a psychic. 
Dr. Ruth has a psychic Zex gymnasium, a psychic gymnasium, which we've talked about before, to, which is just like a crawl space. I mean, when you hear the word <laughs> psychic gymnasium, you think, oh, this is all going to be awesome. This is going to be the danger room. And it turns out to be like a little crawl space uh, to try to make a yogi's heart beat faster. If someone invited you to some, some creepy dude was like, hey, I want you to, to show you my psychic gymnasium. This is about what you'd expect. It's good that his parents aren't asleep upstairs when you get there. He does make the yogi's heartbeat faster. We learn that there is an artist who is also a scanner uh, named Benjamin Pierce, which is the name of Alan Alda's character in MASH. Um, I just, I, it, it distracted me. Uh, played by Robert Silverman, who is a Cronenberg favorite. We've seen this guy in a lot of Cronenberg films. He is a remote, uh, reclusive artist. So um, in trying to infiltrate this underground, uh, Cameron goes to visit a gallery that displays his art, um, which is pretty fucking creepy. We agree. I liked his art. Yeah, I was yeah, all yeah. about the art. I loved the giant head with a sofa inside that looks like entrails. <laughs> yep. Oh, I love that. I was like, let's just sit here. That was, that felt almost like Kubrickian, sort of like Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Like here's a weird interior vibe. Right. It was like the. But the also because the guy looks a lot like the guy who gets yeah in the like he looks a lot like that poor man who gets really bothered in the Clockwork Orange. That poor man who oh, gets yeah. really bothered. Well, that's not a good description <laughs> of what that's, occurs. Yeah. That's another statement. Wow, that's uh... it. Gets a bit. Uh, peeved. <laughs> yeah, you know when I when I looked up the Arlington Catholic Herald uh, review of A Clockwork Orange, as I because my my parents subscribed to the Arlington Catholic Herald, and when I when it's lying on the coffee table, I immediately flipped to the movie review page. And you know how I have yearned to do this for for historical films, as uh, as I do with with Ebert's reviews. But uh, yes, to see the the justification for the O for morally offensive. Uh, content rating on A Clockwork Orange, I'm I'm sure it would say that Alex and his droogs bother. <laughs> A man and a woman in their home. They're very bothersome. Now see here. Um, so the uh, the owner of this gallery introduces himself to Cameron in a way that no art gallery owner ever introduces themselves to anybody oh. unless they want to fuck them. That Thank is you the only reason for, for coming this. to my gallery. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. And Cameron, of course, uh, can't match that energy. He tries to get the artist's uh, digits, uh, scans the gallery owner. <laughs> what if uh, you just think about where he lives? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did like that line. That's actually, that, that's actually pretty good. And then finally, 37 minutes and 49 seconds into this movie, we meet the top build, Miss Jennifer O'Neill, uh, who gives uh, uh, Cameron Vale a nosebleed, or at least Cameron Vale gets mm -hmm. a nosebleed. He then goes to Ben Pierce's uh, remote gallery. It's Ben Pierce's, you know, this is a squirrely performance. It's a satisfying squirrely, squirrely performance, I think. And then when the gang of folks with shotguns show up, I imagine that they were in league with Ben Pierce. They were like his protectors. Yeah. But it turns out not. They shoot him up. They shoot him up real good. Um, and Ben Pierce walks through a fusillade of buckshot and just gets an ouchie. Uh, you know, like right, there's a long right. scene where he is walking and walking and walking through shotgun blasts. Yeah. Um, and that I didn't. I mean, of course, you you don't understand until later. Like, are these three assassins? Are they like, do they not know that Cameron Vale is sitting inside the giant head with the couch inside? Is that why they don't come mm -hmm. after him? I mean, eventually we find out why they, they don't pursue him as well. But yep. yeah, that, and that was another thing that uh, had me thinking of RoboCop, uh, although that film doesn't come out till several years later, because there's the extended, uh, you know, crucifixion, 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 <laughs> the, the crucifixion by a shotgun blast of the Peter Weller character, Murphy, who gets turned into to RoboCop. And it's a, a whole deliberate thing in that movie. And here it's just 
why are we spending 90 seconds of screen time on this? Yeah. You, you don't get a real jolt out of the violence in this in this scene. I thought it, it was just strange how they make a whole meal out of it. I agree. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I, I didn't, it didn't bother me as much how long it took, but I thought maybe, well, he's got a power, he'll do something. And he used his scanning less than anyone <laughs> in the movie. Mm-hmm. I, I guess he just, he put it all into his art and his art kept him saying he didn't <laughs> right. want to break that <laughs> by scanning anybody. He, you know, he held to his word. But you would have liked to see him maybe attempt it. Because one thing I will say for the movie is that everybody's very committed to undulating strangely whenever they need to scan something. Mm -hmm. And I do like that. It's like, you know, they were all instructed, well, just do something sort of strange and unnatural. And we'll we'll all, as long as we're all doing it, they'll just think that's how it goes. (laughs) And, you know, I I like that. The way Ironside slides his jaw from side to side and sort of tucks his chin it was a a very distinct very memorable gesture that does not look in any way accidental mm-hmm. yep good acting choice there i can absolutely see why they why they made you uh tom scarrett's right hand man in top gun <laughs> um he goes to visit uh Scanner HQ, I guess, um, which is kind of like a encounter group, kind of est. <laughs> I don't know exactly what's going on there, but that's where Kim Obrist is, Jennifer O'Neill. Uh-huh. Uh, and no sooner does he uh, encounter her, and she looks at him with her very, very glossy lips, and uh, two gunmen come in, just waltz into the scanner yep. HQ and start blowing folks away, who are staring at this amazing mushroom lamp that I kind of want, um, and. Uh, Kim just totally carries them, like like carries them in the sense of makes like you know just makes them blow up uh, or makes them die, like just totally sissy spacex them. Um, they yeah, try to full get, self-immolation. Full self-immolation. They try to get or away. other immolation, I guess, in this case. Yes, it would be. They try to get away in a school van, um, but and hopefully labeled school bus <laughs> on the front because it doesn't <laughs> look like a school bus. It's just a van. It's not. But a, it says it's, school bus on it. Thank you, Alexander. <laughs> bugged me so much. It is not a bus. It is a van. Um, yeah, they're trying to have and eat their cake simultaneously with this bus van thing, and I'm not going to have it. How dare they? But then, of course, as all must happen, uh, when you have a protagonist, you must have an antagonist. There is an evil van that comes up and blows them away. <laughs> uh, Cameron and Kim get away, but a dude with this face follows them. He's got quite the gun, which he spends a lot of time on assembling and reassembling. Tries to kill them but gets scanned, and in the process of him getting scanned, gives up the words biocarbon amalgamate, which, uh, you know, I'm going to yada, yada, yada a lot of things here, Uh but uh, because the film does. Next thing we know, Cameron is dressed in a hazmat suit. Okay, that is where I I really thought I I had checked out for a scene there. Yep, (laughs) right? Yeah. No, I thought at the time I was watching it, I'm like, well, I guess the movie doesn't need to tell us because, of course, he's a scanner. He would presumably scan people to get into the facility. And I was like, okay, movie, I understand why you skipped all the scenes that would involve him getting into this hazmat suit. Yeah. Like, I was okay with The Dark Knight Rises not showing us how Bruce Wayne sneaks back into Gotham City. And people actually complained about that because he's fucking Batman. That's how he did it. Sure. He did all the things that we've seen him do in many other situations, many other times. I don't have that level of confidence in Stephen Lack, despite his Canadian handsomeness and his uh, incredible ability to modulate his voice. Uh, you know, if he were recording himself for a podcast, uh, there would be no visible waveforms. I'm quite confident. No visible it, would, it would just be a straight line, straight line. <laughs> it would totally be. So, yes. So 
Cameron infiltrates Biocarbon Amalgamate, sees Revok up in the control room signing paperwork. He is <laughs> filling out the <laughs> line item budget. Fiend. He is putting that people on a pip. Voice. Uh-huh. He is he is complaining to HR. He is doing all right. the things that you want to see a villain doing. Got a clipboard. Foreshadowing how he's going to get both of his arms severed in Total Recall a decade later. Yeah. I bet it didn't uh, impede his invoicing career at all. I bet D, like, like D, Christy Brown. <laughs> In my left yeah. foot, he just changed his technique. Yeah, he's an invoice actor. Uh, <laughs> 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 you don't need arms to be. Uh, right, yeah. well, well, we'll workshop it. We'll figure it out. Uh, yeah, no, he's doing some sinister, sinister billing, and uh, <laughs> that's enough to set off uh, Patrick. What's his name? Yep, <laughs> Patty McGee. Patty McGee. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I want to see a villain in a buttoned-up vest of a three-piece suit with rolled-up sleeves uh, with a clipboard. I mean, like, this uh-huh. is, this is you don't see that enough. And Lots of the Bond movies have, have nobodies in clipboards in the third act, Glenn. And, the, like, they, yeah. they populate the hallways of the volcano lair or the launch facility or whatever. There's a lot of that. Yep. Spectre's records are, are very orderly, I'm sure. No, they do seem orderly. They seem like, yes, the volcano is going off now. I'm checking every volcano box. <laughs> yep. It's like the Death Star guys who push all those buttons in sequence. But in this case, they've got, like, a series of checklist items before you get Stromberg launched into space or whatever it is yes. you're doing. There are a lot of uh, computer scenes here, but this is, I think, one of the maybe the first computer scenes of like tapity 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 tap uh, access denied. Like mm-hmm. War Games was somewhere around here. All these are like Commodore pets. They are like giant Texas Instruments calculators. They are just rudimentary, uh, but they look great. That's the more important thing. Yeah, they were very visually charismatic. I also feel like if you're structuring a movie and you're like, you know, at some point in this movie, I know that two things are going to happen. One, a guy's head's going to explode. And two, somebody's going to hack into a computer. (laughs) I'm going to put those two things in an order. Which order should I put them in? And they they made an interesting call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we then cut to Dr. Ruth's Gentleman's Club, um, where... That, that, Another uh, chair for him to slouch in. He's yeah. a very slouchy psychopharmacologist, in my opinion. Uh, so the so head of security is in league with Revok, um, and there's a concept, he's the concept mole who informs Revok that they're bringing in an informant. And, and so when he's told that, Revok tells the mole to kill Dr. Ruth, to kill Patty McGee. And then uh, the mole will talk to Kim, and Cameron will talk to Ruth. This is the this is the, uh, the secret plan they've arranged, which is to go there and give themselves a the fuck up. Um, that is their plan, which is fiendish in its intricacies. Uh, turns out, Biocarbon Amalgamate was Ruth's company, uh, and this is this is part of the film where Cameron says that uh, bio the biocarbon amalgamate or, or ephemeral, whatever, is sent out in huge tankers. And that's like, okay. <laughs> there it is. Oh, they sent it out, do they? Oh, oh, geez, Garth. Oh, my. Oh, holy hockey sticks. McGowan is, um, he's 52, I think, when they're shooting this movie. I see no reason not to uh, infer that it takes place in the present of when it was released in 1981. Uh, uh-huh. He does say, doesn't he say that he sold the company in 1941? Or something like that, yeah. Do you know of a drug laboratory called Biocarbon Amalgamate? Yes, of course. I, I founded it in 1942. So he's 52 playing, what, 75? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
he's done it Or he's before. like a Tony Stark situation where he was a real prodigy with yeah. that maybe, ephemeral maybe manufacturer. That, yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe he was... But I think the beard adds 20 years easily. <laughs> I think he gets away with... That's true. That's 70. true. I mean, uh, we just saw him Ish. in a couple Columbos and a few Columbos where without the beard, he that looks much younger. Um, uh, so they find out about the mole. Ruth wants Cameron to scan the computer um, for reasons that is not made initially clear. I want you to access the right program. I do not have concept computer clearance. Neither do I. But you do have a nervous system. And so does a computer. And you can scan a computer as you would another human being. The scanning the computer thing, what I really appreciate about this is that it's not presented as this Hail Mary solution, like it just might work. You know, like it's, it's just like, <laughs> it's like sure. Yeah. yeah. You have a nervous system. The computer has a nervous <laughs> system right. also. I love that. I'm like, oh, yeah. The compu- I wouldn't have thought of it that way, but it does. Now that sure. you've said it with such absolute conviction, Patty. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is his secret. This is he, he's always he's always committed. But unplugging it and plugging it back in doesn't work. Then you have to join with the computer <laughs> and hijack its nervous system using your own. So the mole threatens her, but and she scans him, but she doesn't kill him because if you were ever going to do a second head blows up scene, this would be where to do it. Right. But she doesn't kill him, which turns out to be a mistake. No, now, she she does the gag from the Suicide Squad, the new one, the James Gunn one, where she makes the security guard think that he's talking to his mom. Uh, different different security. Different guard. I'm talking se- about the head of security. Oh right, right, right. That, we haven't yes, gotten yes, there. Yes, yes. We haven't gotten okay. there. Yet. Right. This, talking about the head of security, where she escapes from the room, the interrogation room. Um, at, but we can't skip over this, Chris Alexander, because this is the scene. This is the Patty McGee scene, which stops the movie dead in its tracks. No, this is more important. The computer is more important. Access the right program. More important. We start with a weird voiceover about accessing the past. But the ripe program is the past. Therefore, to access the ripe program is to access the past. No. Access the past. Access past. It's always been there, <laughs> rotting away, sucking out my joy, which... <laughs> <laughs> if I ever, I, if I ever have to find some gay subtext, there it is. Uh-huh. It mustn't happen again. He gets a complete Shakespearean soliloquy here, in the middle of this film, which does not seem to permit such um, emoting. It mustn't happen again. It's always been there inside me, lurking away, sucking out my joy, rotting my successes. Cameron. Oh, Cameron, I have a way with you, Cameron. Mustn't happen again. Ripe. Ripe indeed. The ripe program must be stopped! What'd you guys make of this? I loved it, but what'd you guys make of it? No, who 
to whom was it delivered? <laughs> I kept thinking, is he being scanned? Is he just having a thought in the movie wanted us to know? Did they have a bunch of really good takes from a scene that got cut when they were doing all the like audio <laughs> clips? And they're like, well, you know, it was interesting what he thought about the past sucking him dry. I guess we'd better just have him stare into space and think this. Yeah, I I loved it because it was weird and served no purpose. <laughs> but a Patty McGee doesn't sign on to a film unless he gets... A Shakespearean soliloquy that stops them. And a box around his name on the poster. And a box around his name. Okay, so here's uh, the only relevant material on this film, on Scanners, from Rupert Booth's biography, Not a Number, Patrick McGoo in a Life. And this is uh, actually, this is not Booth's own original reporting. He is simply taking this from Cronenberg on Cronenberg. The director reflects, and this is 1996, so this is 15 years later, of his experience working with Patty McGee. He says... He was so angry. His self-hatred came out as anger against everybody and everything. He said to me, if I didn't drink, I'd be afraid I'd kill someone. He looks at you that way, and you just say, well, keep drinking. It's it's all self-destructive because it's all self-hating. That's my theory. He was also terrified. The second before we went to shoot, he said, I'm scared. I wasn't shocked. Olivier had said he was terrified each time he had to go on stage. With Patrick, though, it was just so raw and so scary, full of anger and potent i feel like I, I want that word to be portent but it's full of anger and potent i guess like his fright full was of anger potent. comma and potent it was very okay, strong yeah. mm-hmm. but he was sensing the disorganization the script wasn't there so he was right to worry about it he didn't know me he didn't know whether i could bring it off or not we parted from the film on not very good terms ultimately okay so maybe maybe if you're uh if you're a third build actor uh is the one who's there and he's got this weird moment to just be and then get down on his knees and take a shot in the head. Maybe you give it to him. Yeah. Maybe you say, oh yeah, you know, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> you go, you do what you need <laughs> to do. <laughs> because his screen time in Escape from Alcatraz was so small, I, I actually timed how long in aggregate McGowan is, is on screen. 24 minutes. So, okay. I mean, that's a good, le- that's a little less than 25% of the film. And he gets a death scene. So between those two things, mm-hmm. his... His, his billing is justified, I think. Does he say in this monologue, or am I just misremembering it, does he say the words, ripe, ripe. The ripe program is cold and cruel. Oh. Ripe program is cold and cruel. Oh, yeah, he does say cold and cruel. Yeah. But I, I'm forgetting if he says ripe. Yeah, I think he says it once. I uh, Don't quote me or, or cite me on that. Uh, <laughs> That's right. The time is out of joint. Ripe, ripe, ripe. Um, I feel like if he had said it, you would have... Quoted it several times already, well, so, so probably uh, not. If he said it, he, if he said it because he's playing North American, <laughs> I was going to say Canadian, caught myself. Uh, because he's playing uh, whatever the hell he's playing, he doesn't say ripe, ripe, which he would do on the prisoner, which is another reason, Alexander, you need to it's, see. It's, it's a reason to watch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's at <laughs> um, least one line reading per episode that fully justifies your investment of fifty-five zero minutes. So they, Cameron and Kim, run down a hallway and they scan some guards. Uh, Edipley, I would say, they scan these guards by making them by making one of them think of his mother. Yeah, um, yeah. it's a preview of a dangerous method. Yes, right. I like that. <laughs> right, I really, right, right, right. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that that moment. That is a that is a smart use. This is the thing about superpowers in films. Like you, you have to can't you can't just keep using them the same way. At some point, you have to innovate to keep it interesting. The consec security guards they look like Nazi officers, right? With those hats, sure, with sure, those long black trench coats. That okay? Yep. 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 
Uh, Cameron and Kim escape, stop by a payphone, they become human modems. Neil's nervous system and the computer's nervous system uh -huh. are joined together. He's scanning it. And the guy back at uh, HQ at Consec is, is trying to figure out uh, how to stop it. And he says the immortal line, which is, from, for me, it's the MVP line. But I could override the max security self-destruct. It's designed to blow all the circuits in case of anticipated possession of data by unauthorized and unfriendly forces. Do it now. Which... I mean, there must have been films where something like that was said uh -huh. before, and there certainly have been films where something like that is said since. But I think we're at a, I think we're at a crux moment there. I think this is the first time with the tappity 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 tap, you know, eighty percent, ninety percent, one hundred percent. I think we're, we're this is one of the er instances of that kind of thing happening. Right. Yeah. No, it's a very thrilling instance of somebody connecting two scanners to a network. Uh, <laughs> And then they destroy the network because something about the connection is bad. We've all been there. We've it's all a universal been. human experience. But it hadn't been committed to film before, not like this. You know, I am so much a, a student, such a such a lover of movies where the, the terminal can only be accessed from this thing in the bottom of the volcano. So Ethan Hunt has to scale the Burj Khalifa or whatever to go pull the switch out. Or I, I like that the Sam Raimi looking tech, it's got tech headquarters after not Frank Langella tells him at gunpoint to just blow the whole system he gets some keystrokes and then says i have to finish it over there <laughs> i need to cross the room <laughs> yeah. no this is the ancestor this is like the, the the cave thing that eventually grows into the mammoths we know and love this is it's like true. the small uh elephantine <laughs> cave creature yeah i mean we do get some very sexy shots of motherboards close-ups we see some diodes yeah. uh, and then everything blows up real good and at the payphone the phone melts in what's maybe my favorite shot of the film is that that phone receiver melting in the park like, <laughs> 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 like the green icing flowing down um they take a cab to see a dr frayne don't exactly know why can't remember why um, <laughs> he was in the database when they were scanning uh -huh. and i guess there were other names that were also in the database and i couldn't tell that his name was more important than the other names but it had a little box around was... it no no, oh, no it a box, it of course no, no. yeah it's a patty McGee. yeah kim he goes into the to talk to the Dr. Frayne, and Kim gets has to sit in the fucking waiting room. I don't exactly know why. Why does Kim sit in the waiting room? Why don't the they patriarchy? Oh, man. Uh, uh, and she gets scanned by a baby. Gross. <laughs> so gross. Uh, I mean, babies Scanned are by a baby. Just germ delivery systems. I don't want to have my thoughts read by an infant. No, but, you know, that was terrifying. I, I liked the, like, oh, my gosh, she's being scanned by, like, a fetus. What's going on? <laughs> no, that, that was cool. Like, a rare moment when I thought the movie was, was maybe going to um, switch into a, a higher gear. And, you know. And then, no. <laughs> yep. uh, Kim gets scanned in the waiting room. No, not her. Her child. Her unborn child scanned me. This is scanned by a fetus, the Kim Ober story. Uh, Cameron gets confronts Dr. Frayne about prescribing ephemeral, and here is... What the film wants to be uh, a major twist. I don't understand. Ephemeral. Uh, ephemeral is creating new scanners. Uh, it turns out that Ephemeral is creating new scanners, which doesn't make any sense if it's actually also a suppressant. Uh, I didn't quite make that connection. Why you would give somebody more if it's the thing that created yeah. you. Uh, okay. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's not like a button. Maybe, I don't know, maybe these scanners, they're different, and it is like a button for them. 
nope, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not none of this is checking out. Yeah. This. Hardy uh, listeners who have lasted this long will help us out with that. Don't steroids make testicles uh, shrivel up? I mean, you'd think that that all of these uh, growth hormones and whatnot. I'm, yeah, I'm, and then you take the second dose of steroids, and it makes them grow right. again. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm a yep. doctor of journalism. I'm a juicer, so I know about, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anywho, Kim and Cameron get darted. Uh, Cameron wakes up in Revox office, and Kim is out in the waiting room again. What is, what's going <laughs> oh, on in this film? God. Why is she out in the waiting room? <laughs> Why is she away from this thing? Anyway. Oh, um, I'm sure there, there's a fine selection of Canadian periodicals there on the, <laughs> <laughs> on the table for her to flip through. I did like that the doctor, when he was, it was clear that he would need to talk to our protagonist, whose name I keep forgetting because of his charisma. <laughs> yeah. uh, he, he says to the guy who's in there, read a magazine. It's like, oh, they really thought about this. They're like, what yeah. would a doctor say? You'd say, read a magazine. Yep. Well, you, um, you cast actors for their improvisational abilities. You know, they, 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 they take in the given circumstances and they're yeah. to generate a, an authentic seeming emotional response to the fictional Yeah, Cronenberg was like, and now do one for fun. Just do, just have fun. With yeah. it. Just one for you. So uh, Cameron Revok is there. Revok is behind this whole thing because he hates their father. This is, they get the I <sighs> Luke moment. Yep. Because it turns out that Dr. Ruth was, in fact, their father. When this movie came out, The Empire Strikes Back was less than a year old. That yep, movie had yep. come out the prior summer. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, so probably while they were making this film. Uh, so <laughs> ephemeral was aimed at pregnant women to create scanners. There's some um, characterization reversals in this scene that didn't work for me because I couldn't follow them while, you know, he he says... You're just like our father, and Cameron really shouldn't have the um, Cameron, who was very answers. Well, maybe well I'm just disposed. like my mother, too bold. Too bold. Yeah. He was really well disposed toward Doctor Ruth through this entire film, and then to use that as a weapon against this guy who hates their father, it seemed really quick. It seemed like all this, all these reversals were happening. Yep. In the last minute, any any thoughts? Well, I was reading about this movie a little bit, and one of the thoughts I had was that apparently David Cronenberg every morning would just write a few new pages and film whatever pages he happened to have, and maybe this is a casualty of that being the process, because it does seem like, you're right, a bunch of character leaps that suddenly he has strong negative feelings about Dr. Paul Ruth now that he's learned that Ephemeral was his baby before he was his baby, Mm. and this is his brother. (laughs) Also, I feel like there's no, like, less climactic revelation than, like, oh, this person who's not here on screen with us is related to us both, and we're related. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, this is just my, again, Rise of Skywalker. I don't, if, if it's not literally your father telling you he's your father, I think you really have a bar to clear. Yeah. And I'm not sure this bar was cleared. <laughs> no, no. But also, it's like, do I care that these people are related? I guess I didn't care about him to begin with, but now he has relatives, so I care more. <laughs> um, when people have relatives, I understand that they're people I should feel for. Yeah, but... I, and maybe he just came back from, like, guys, I saw this movie, Empire Strikes Back, last night, and, like, uh, here's some new pages, and it turns out, you know? <laughs> that is something that, that I've heard about so, so many films that seemed to have gone badly wrong and so many that turned out great the uh, rewriting on the fly fixing it in post dramatically re-editing doing huge amounts of adr and voiceover whatever like there are so many great movies that have stories like that too i I don't know that like a flawed process always 
dooms a a film. But yeah, I mean, I saw those those same anecdotes about Cronenberg uh, rewriting constantly, and a lot about how apparently the production schedule of this film was largely determined by some weird Canadian tax credits thing, where um, suddenly money was available to shoot scenes, but they would have to spend it right away before the investors wanted to take it right. back or, or something. So, yeah. And it I was like a... the fine foods available at this Canadian mall. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they should have done more product placement. That could have really <laughs> bought them the time that they needed. Yep. All right. So there's a grimace off uh, between uh, Rivak and Cameron. And oh, Hang on, Glenn. First of all, Rivak makes a sincere attempt to, to bring his brother into the family business. Mm-hmm. explains mm-hmm. how he had protected him along the way, explains that if, if he was pulling the strings of those three assassins who went after the, the artist who made the giant head with the plushy sofa inside of it, that would be why they didn't kill Cameron as well, right? Because um, Rivak was the puppet master and he, and he didn't want Cameron dead. You sent your right? soldiers out to kill me. Never, never you. I've spent years looking for you. And then when Keller told me that Ruth had dressed you up and sent you out as some ridiculous amateur spy, I tried to take care of you, look after you, guide you to me. Now, why would you try to do that? Who's your mother? I don't know. Who's your father? I don't know. What was your first childhood memory? I don't have any. No, you don't. And it's no accident that you don't. You were kept on ice. It wasn't until Consec had trouble putting me away that they thawed you out. You've been monitored every day of your life, allowed to live like garbage, scum. He knew where you were, but it wasn't until he needed you that he reached down and hauled you up out of the slime. Who? Your father. Dr. Paul Ruth. Our father. This might be the longest dialogue scene I've ever seen Michael Ironside perform. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. And I think he's he's good. And then when um, Cameron says no. No! <laughs> All right, we're going to do it the scanner way. <laughs> I'm going to suck your yeah, brain dry. <laughs> All right. We're going to do it the scanner way. I'm going to suck your brain dry. That's a line in this film, isn't it? We'll do it the scanner way. <laughs> that's um, the scanner way. You want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. That's, that's how you get Capone. Uh, yeah, so, I'm sad it wasn't on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the scene that's on the poster. This is Michael Ironside blown up real good. Or at least before that, uh, you know, they have the the practical effects where they are oh, up to the side. so practical. Pumping um, these veins in their faces up with air. Yes. So, like, I want the scene where it's just, you can hear the where they have these little The bike pump. All right. Yeah. Now, this, apparently, this finale with the gross pustules forming on Ironside and lax faces and eventually spurting little jets of blood out of them. This, but not the the signature exploding head at the beginning of the film, is uh, the work of uh, Dick Smith, famed makeup artist. Uh, he wins an Oscar for his work on Amadeus a few years after this, aging um, uh, Salieri. 
Abraham, Abraham, F. Murray Abraham, right? F. Murray Abraham, ah, who was, F. Murray Abraham, yeah. who was uh, I think, 44 when they shoot Amadeus, but he plays, you know, Solieri at various ages. Eventually, like many years after that, gets a Lifetime Achievement Award from the the MPAA. But yeah, he's he's the guy who came up with the gross blood pustules and ways of apparently making the puppets less noticeable by not by detailing the puppet so much as as by like obscuring the faces of of lack and ironside so that the real expressive human actors would not be quite so expressive so when they have to switch to the the dummies you don't feel that that contrast as sharply that seems fairly ingenious Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it worked for me. I mean, with lack, there was no contrast at all. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't tell. He's just a little bit more spurty than yeah, he honestly, was. Honestly, yeah, more, more expressive. Um, <laughs> yeah. More literally expressive. More he is expressive. Yeah, exactly, things. literally. Yeah, so this is the body horror, and eventually uh, Revok blows up real... No, I'm sorry, Cameron blows up real good. Uh, she wakes up in the outer office and comes in, sees Cameron's burnt-up body. This desiccated husk of, of Cameron. You're glossing yep. over, Glenn, you're glossing over the scene where, well, it's really more of a shot where where Cameron gets in lotus pose almost or something, and with his, his elbows locked against his rib cage with palms upturned, he kind of goes into meditation pose, and then the flames appear in his palms. Yep. Looks that's the thing. so As the veins goofy. Are... That does not look yeah. like a... I don't know. As the veins are popping out, the veins are popping out on his forearms. I mean, that is, you know, that's that's not just creatine. That is the uh, NO3. That's that's yeah, the NO3 powder yeah, you got yeah, in there. Yeah, you're gonna have there. Yeah, that's that's uh, it's not just uh, that's uh, getting down, getting vascular. Um, so she sees Revok posed in a corner in a way that nobody would ever pose, and then he lifts his head up, and it turns out it's Cameron inside Revok's body. He says, "We've won." Credits, <laughs> and. I would, you know, I would, I, that's a pretty slighty goalpost there in terms of one. Because now you are, I mean, again, Canadian handsome Cameron. I'm going to say Philadelphia handsome Michael Ironside. Wow. That's what I'm going to say. All right. And I'm from Philly. I can say that. Okay. But it's a downgrade. By any stretch of the any reasonable expectation, it's a downgrade. Not in terms of charisma, but in terms of physical appearance. Michael Ironside worked throughout the decades, but he is memorable in a number of big movies in the 80s and early 90s. I think for the same reason that Robert Davi is in the in the same period. It's just sure. like those those facial scars and that low voice. They make you memorable. It doesn't matter what your expressive range is. You know, there is always a need for the the narrow range that you emit, uh, particularly in genre films. And he's gone on to become a very successful voice actor, from in-voice actor to voice actor. <laughs> um, the thing about Lack is he didn't do a lot of acting. He was an artist, and I think he probably got pulled into this project as a favor to a producer or something, mm. or maybe he thought this was going to be his big break. Because, you know, like a lot of people make relatively low-budget horror films as like a way to like, you know, we can make a lot of money on a low-budget horror film. That's still a right. that's still a truism. Uh, not true, isn't this? That's still true to this day. So maybe he was banking all that, and when it didn't pan out, even though it was a very successful film yeah. for what it was, uh, maybe he just decided it was too much, or maybe he just hated his performance on the screen as much as right-thinking North Americans do. Uh, I don't think he's as good as Patrick Fugit in Almost Famous. I'm trying to think of actors who have huge parts in movies who had done nothing or or very little or you know nothing of comparable scale before george lazenby in on her majesty's secret service sure ah. yeah had not done any acting uh, i mean he had been in commercials he had not done a play 
ever. He had not done wow. a walk-on part ever. And he's James Bond. <laughs> it's a crazy story. It gives him a certain naturalism. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who else? Uh, like Eddie Furlong in Terminator 2? I mean, I'm thinking of non-actors who were casting directors, yeah. just found them, and they were like, mm, you can carry a movie, maybe. Let's let's give you a screen test. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it's, it's something that happens with child actors, I think, because um, they like child actors, they mostly do commercials, so they, they smile. After every mm-hmm. line, and, and finding a kid who will memorize lines and hit marks, but not just smile, no matter what they're saying, is apparently very difficult. So, we have reached the end of the film, the 1981 <laughs> film Scanners, by Robert Cronenberg, with a David. memorable... If, if, Robert Cronenberg, well, that explains a lot. Yes, David Cronenberg, uh, <laughs> David Cronenberg <laughs> He's yes, been trading on his, his brother's fame for, for so long. Yeah, they, and they were brothers. Yeah, no, he's, <laughs> he's absolutely the, the Frank Stallone of body horror. I was thinking of Cassidy, and I think. Anyway, um, yes. So this Magoon performance, as we've mentioned, Alexandra, is subdued compared to what he can do. It's a pret on par, <laughs> I would say, to um, even with that whack-ass um, soliloquy. It's about on par with what he was doing in in Alcatraz. Would you agree, Chris? Um, about that level. I feel it a little a little more here. Hmm. I I think he he gets to well he he doesn't get a a weird monologue in in Alcatraz. True. Again, according to possibly libelous biography by Rupert Booth, um, this film was was more affected by his drinking than than Escape from Alcatraz was. I guess maybe because he has many more scenes and and longer mm-hmm. speeches. I don't know. I feel like it, this is uh, we we are seeing a different shade here. I don't feel like almost the absence of characterization that you get in Escape mm-hmm. from from Alcatraz. I don't know. I think he's a, he is a a perfectly credible mad scientist. Sure. Well, I mean that's true. Oh, so and, and the, slash you, uh, of... sexual uh, relationship uh, educator counselor. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, we met plenty of mad scientists in the village, so you know he had he was probably working off you know <laughs> write what you know. Uh-huh. Um, so Alexandra, this is the point where we rate this film objectively with ruthless objectivity, ruthless efficiency, ruthless. Um, Paul ruthless. Uh, yeah, Paul ruthless. Uh, ruthless. On a scale of one. To six, where do you come down? Guess goes first. Mm, with six being the best. <laughs> six being the best. <laughs> well, I think I will go back to my threes. Oh mm. wow! Yeah. I see it. I see it. No, but I, I think it. his performance. I mean, he ate all of the scenery that was given to him to eat, yeah. and I didn't disbelieve him. If, I, if I'm ranking him within the movie, I think he's a solid five. But mm. if the movie as a whole, I this may be blasphemous for people who were like, "This was a seminal film," but I'm, I'm yeah, sticking to my three. Yep. Uh, I'm going to go two, didn't care for it, uh, thought it was a slog, liked him in it, didn't like him as, as much as I've seen him mm. in other things. The, you know what? The monologue is going to bump it up to a 2.5. Yeah. Well, I mean, not every film can be the film that I'm also trying to arm twist Petri into joining us for, which is Braveheart, Glenn. Oh, good Lord. You'll get yet another Magoon, uh, another... <laughs> His energy level is higher in in Braveheart. Yeah. That's a that's a generalization okay. that I can make. Um, yeah, I think three is fair. I think I think three is is reasonable. Um, I don't know. It's, I, I, it's a it's a hugely there are, there are devotees. Yeah, but it's like how big would that cult be if not for the exploding head? Yeah, that's <laughs> true. 
the the featurettes that are available for this film on the Criterion disc and on the Criterion channel seem to recognize this because two-thirds of the making of thing is all about the exploding head and the many different unsuccessful attempts they took at that with a like there was a a balloon head that looked laughably fake and then a wax head that looked laughably fake and finally they had to make a, a cast of Louis Del Grande and apparently fill it with hamburger mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. among other other additives and then they they couldn't get it to explode properly with the squibs um, so blasting it with a shotgun with uh, the the shotgun shell, instead of having buckshot in it, it was full of chunky kosher salt. Apparently, was mm. uh, what was was needed to create that spectacularly violent and disgusting image that uh, will haunt your your dreams and the internet forever and ever. And then apparently, after they had that that perfect gross <laughs> take, they tried it again. They tried some slightly less gory versions, fearful that they wouldn't be able to release the movie with that in. But uh, no, the grossest take which was the first one where they came up with the shoot the puppet with the shotgun method is the one that they used in the in the movie <laughs> yep which is still also used in the muppet um <laughs> uh the thing is there is a species of horror uh devotees who would make a movie like this into a cult movie who do not belong to the this is a good film because they don't they don't care about the cinematic uh, aspects of it. They care about what's grossest. That that was really gross. Yeah, is what it boils down to. Well. And that's what I think is working here because once you get past that head exploding real good, you've got a pretty clunky, badly acted <laughs> TV movie that kind of meanders about before sort of ending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what is this, Midnight Cowboy? I guess that's not an art gallery, that's a party. But no, I do think Ebert made a good point, which is he says basically this movie is taken hostage by its plot. Mm -hmm. And... As a, it, all the, its plot and its special effects are the two yeah, things that the movie yeah. always knew needed to happen, and it doesn't care about any of the other things that make people enjoy watching movies. And so, if that's if you if special effects are all that you love, then that's what you'll receive. Yep. And so, <laughs> that is what we received in abundance. <laughs> what is that a quote from Alexandra? I, I, uh, I know it from. It's Star Wars. It's if that's what it's, I love, yeah. That's if money is all that you love, then that's, that's what, what you'll you receive. receive. Okay, thank yeah. God. Uh, it was bugging me. And it you can hear her like so lip gloss clicking. Yeah. I could hear a Carrie Fisher's lisp in it, and I knew I knew it was coming. So yes, do we need any big um, finish? I don't know. I'm I'm surprised by the impulse that I feel to defend this film a little bit, just because I I like scrappy little movies that are just just barely making it. They're reaching beyond their grasp. Also, you know, I'm thinking that this movie coincided with the uh, that Claremont Byrne classic run on on X Men comics, and I was you know I was barely alive when this movie came out, so I wouldn't have been able to see it until later. But when we were growing up. You and I, Glenn, even though, I mean, it's, it's weird. I, I actually think it's like someone who could not conceive of comic book movies becoming so mainstream that it's actually a problem, you know, that they have actually uh, just swallowed everything else above a, a certain budget level. Watching this movie really reminded me of the era, like before even the Burton Batman, where you'd see some chintzy TV adaptation of a, a favorite comic book and be like, well, this is the best they could do. It'd be like, well, if, if they were going to make an X-Men movie, it would look like this, right? I mean, because you couldn't make an X-Men movie with people hurling balls of flame at each other and Nightcrawler right. bamping that, around, and it would just be this. It would just be this. I think that's probably what's bugging me, because it reminded me on a plot level of like... 
a 70s superhero television show. Yeah. Somebody has a power, but you can't manifest it on screen. So <laughs> it has to be a power where you squint at somebody and they, they, they squint back. So it's like a $6 million man. It's like a Wonder Woman right. episode where there's something, somebody has a power, they uh, they do that power, usually in scenes that get repeated often. Uh, you know, except in the middle of the giant head blowing up. That That's that's what knocks it into cinema, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, yeah, it had almost like an old-time Star trek vibe. Yeah. When he's, like, mind-melding with a computer, I'm like, I've seen Spock do this. This isn't yes. that novel. Of course a computer Spock has a did this with a rock. System. What are you kidding me? Yeah. It's a like, horde of it, Glenn. That is a sentient being. How dare you? Okay, okay. Speaking of hamburger, yeah. <laughs> The uh, the phone booths um, that becomes a thing again in, in the Matrix, right? Don't they have to enter and exit yeah, the Matrix via yeah. the phone? Yeah. So, and I mean, I think in probably in by nineteen ninety nine when the Matrix is coming out, I mean, phone booths they haven't disappeared entirely, but they're kind of a, a curiosity. I mean, in nineteen eighty one, they were just a normal thing that you'd see places. Yep. That was not uh, in the realm of fetishist kind of um, in in the way that that the Matrix and then later the John Wick movies they really go in stylistically on the old-timey telephone switchboards and, you know, operators yep. taking notes on notepads and, and things like that where it's its own aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sure is dumb, though. <laughs> okay, here's a, here's a question. Could a better actor than Stephen Lack sell the phone booth uh, takeover better? You know, if you got Joaquin Phoenix, <laughs> like, here, I want you to, <laughs> want you to take this payphone and... Psych out this computer. Do you think he could sell it? I mean, you make a very good point, Chris, because this is what we see Keanu Reeves do later, and I wouldn't say that he is a dynamic presence on screen. He's a charismatic presence on screen, but a dynamic actor? No. Um, so maybe it's not. Maybe it's, you know, maybe there's something about I mean, I've done emoting a, into a phone. A big turnaround on Keanu Reeves as uh, I have expanded my, my definition of what good acting is, but also I think... Over the course of his life, he has become a much better actor than he was in the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. That's an important tangent. But I think it's, in- it's an interesting question of, like, could a better actor fix this? But I feel like the problem with the movie is not that the, the acting, I mean, that, that is a problem with the movie, <laughs> but the problem is sort of that the plot they've chosen is not the most interesting plot given the circumstances. Right. It's like, oh, this guy is related to another guy. <laughs> and so, like, he's going to infiltrate this underground. It's like, well, show me him infiltrating the underground, like risking getting caught. He's surrounded by people who all can read his mind. That sounds like an interesting plot line. Like, they introduce all these things which sound like they're going to be interesting, and then they really don't deliver on any of them. Yeah. He, goes and, he goes to an art gallery. I know. Like, yeah, there's another way. There's, like, two ways of the scanners, and, like, that's an interesting division. I know a, a lot of the internet chatter about this was like, yes, because it represents, well, some of them are yuppie, and some of them are hippies and the fusion of the two that's who inherits the world and i'm like i'm not wow i mean i guess anything can mean anything Um, i didn't i didn't pick up on that potential reading at all i will confess well that's why that's why michael ironside was wearing the suit was so that we would know that he was young and upwardly uh he's of the, the best class yeah. I, I mean, now that I'm thinking of it, I'm sure Jim Jarmusch has made more than one movie where a guy goes to a food court and then he goes to an art gallery and then he goes to a doctor's yeah. waiting room. <laughs> yep. Yep. Then there's a big finale inside an office. Yep. <laughs> that you can just sell that, uh, sell that bill of goods as a, as a sci-fi epic. I'm going to give Cronenberg all the, all the credit in the world. 
I actually was surprised how few films he did. I mean, I see 21 feature credits, which is, which is, I mean, no small number, but just for a guy who's been around so long, I thought he'd done more. Did not realize that Cronenberg had not directed a feature since uh, 2014's Map of the Stars. And I have seen only about half of his movies. So, I, I mean, I appreciate you, you know, you see the seeds of, of later grosser successes like The Fly in this. Dear God, that movie's disgusting. Yeah, the only two Cronenbergs I've seen are this and A Dangerous Method, which I didn't know was a Cronenberg because, How I don't know, would you, of, if you didn't? the things you associate with him are not right. in it as far as like like the Rick and Morty, here's some Cronenbergs wandering around, yeah, yeah, like yeah. suppurating everywhere. <laughs> it's just like Kira Knightley is acting and so is everyone else in the movie, uh-huh. um, <laughs> which I don't associate with Cronenberg. He didn't write that, did he? I keep thinking like maybe Sarah Rule or someone wrote that, but then I, it's probably because I conflate that with the vibrator play for no reason. But I can see, no, I can see why you would, even though they aren't. But yeah, no, they, I feel like the energy is similar, even if the content is dis like not not identical mm-hmm. but yeah i, I mean it's, it's based on I, I i should have googled this more thoroughly before arriving here it's, it's based on a on a very well-regarded canadian tax incentive also <laughs> uh, well it's been a delight to have you here petri and, really and i and i hope you, you so will much. i hope you will come back I gotta watch Braveheart. Braveheart no because... yeah steve is like you can't just watch scanners and not Braveheart. So. no <laughs> uh, well, first of all, if you if you imagine the line reading Daryl Rubark, but then you replace it with freedom, like you you, you see the sort of expansion of of ambition, mm. and every Magoon scene in in Braveheart is uh, an absolute masterclass in uh, chainmail wearing dickery. Okay, so many things to to recommend it, and a, and a, you know a, a brilliant James Horner score, really 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 okay. top drawer mm. James Horner. Score for a, a, a film composer who is uh, often fairly accused of ripping off himself. At least he's stealing from the best, as all the great artists <laughs> do when he recycles mm. his Braveheart score endlessly. All right, Chris. But what is next for you and me? Oh boy, What's coming up next. Um. Ooh. Okay, we got to figure that. Well, there's still uh, <laughs> there's. Yeah, there's Mary Queen of Scots <laughs> right here. Maybe, maybe Mary Queen of Scots. Okay. Uh, it, unless you want to do the Phantom uh, again. Or... The thing is, I think we should do the films that somebody might actually have a chance of actually seeing. Yeah, I'm saying Mary um, Mary Queen so of that, Scots that has, kind of has been released on Blu-ray. It's it's not streamable. Is the problem? Ask, the... I don't think we can ask people to rent or buy a Blu-ray of a thing just for this lousy little podcast. So if, is uh, the Phantom streaming? Maybe I don't know. I've never seen the Phantom. Okay. <laughs> It's it's not part of one of the Billy Zane filmography that I regard as as essential. Okay, so we we'll, we will you will work your magic and edit like an actual. We'll, ending. Uh, <laughs> <You're there>. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll uh, we'll overdub. Petri, what would you like to plug? People can read you in the Washington Post several times per week, of course. But but what else? What's what's going on with Inherit the Windbag? I was looking forward to seeing Inherit the Windbag oh. pre-pandemic, and I know Mosaic Theater here in D.C. had to postpone that of course can you give us an update on on that 
Well, so it, we have a fully digital version that I'm not sure if it's still available online, but like it exists inside the internet. You can get it in your computer, just like you're a scanner's person. <laughs> right. So I just um, need to get to a phone I'm not sure booth. there's going to be a, no, exactly. I'm not sure there's a stage version in the works anymore, given just everyone's schedules and the pandemic, but there is a beautifully captured zoom digital rendering um, <laughs> that actually like does really neat things with like, oh, like we're doing a different medium now. And so we can't just like act straight into the screen. <sighs> so yeah, no, it's cool. Check it out. I mean, I've got another book coming once I finish writing it. So that's like very far down the pike. Mm -hmm. So yeah, my editor is like, what, what are you doing on the podcast? And not, <laughs> he's, he's an old timey newscaster. And what are you doing on the podcast? Why aren't you getting me my copy? Hey, Sweet what do you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Hey. When you were on my, my now mercifully deleted from the world Fringe Festival podcast one time, and I remember you saying that, that actually you enjoyed playwriting and writing fiction when it wasn't wasn't your day job and i and i i thought of this earlier this evening when you you uh said that you you uh had been looking forward to having seen scanners and now you were happy about having seen scanners because that that sort of past tense thing is always the way you know i i'm i'm glad to have written something but i hate writing yes. it's so it's it's awful yeah. it's awful and you were you were one of the the few people who is good at it, whom I've ever heard express any, any joy about the actual labor of, of doing it. Uh, only rarely. Like, mostly the joy is, like, when you look at it and you've finished it. But yeah. uh, that, and even then you're like, oh, something's wrong with it. And now I know what's wrong with it, but I'm, yeah. I'm on deadline, so goodbye. Um, <laughs> uh. It's been so great to have you. Thank you for doing this. Again. Sorry, the... Oh, yeah, this has been a treat. <laughs> should, should I stop uh, recording? Oh, sorry. This has been a treat. <laughs> yep. Now, now, give me, give me one as, uh, as radio announcer lady. Uh, yeah. So this, this is now, now, now I'm thinking about it. Yes. <laughs> uh, Hermie. No, no, it's. I don't even. Herman Melville. <laughs> <laughs> Another fucking. Uh, hack. Well, f f please fix this in post. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Oh, speaking of fixing and posts, if we're going to be a, a, an excruciating stickler for accuracy, I was born in D.C. but baptized in Wisconsin. But that's like, if you're really getting detailed about my specifics. <laughs> this, uh, what, is, what is the purpose of this show, if, if, if not to obsess over, over minutia? Far less important than the actual <laughs> place of your, of your birth. Um, yeah, you're a new yeah, show. Who's new you show? Gotta, no. You got to. All right, but but I think you should you should edit your wiki entry because uh, whatever fool said that you were uh, mm. you were a, a native Wisconsinite, entitled to all the all the privileges uh, thereof. All the cheese. They don't know what they're talking about. All right, did we say the Phantom, the Phantom Thread, uh, the Phantom Menace, the Phantom? Uh, uh, just the Phantom. I, can we not say it because we don't know if it's streaming or not? So you know. I think we should probably just watch this space. <laughs> Why don't we commit? But if it's not streaming, it doesn't make any sense to do it, is my point. <laughs> All right. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah. Only I had some... To the Googles. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You should definitely keep all of this in. You should oh, keep 100% yeah, yeah, yeah. of this, this part. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we do the Phantom, then then we can get your Watto in here. If you try mean, and no. <laughs> That's, I wouldn't describe that as an incentive. Uh, Amazon, <laughs> Amazon Prime with a subscription, Paramount with a subscription, YouTube for two ninety nine, Pluto TV. The what? Uh, Apple TV <laughs> from three ninety nine. Yes, Voodoo, so that's which, a yes. It's problematic. Okay, so yes, the platform of your choice. All it's going to cost you is three bucks, and I'm gonna.
This is not one of those films out of which I have the the runtime at the ready, but I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot my shot. Say 104 minutes, Glenn. You're looking right at it. Give me a runtime on the Phantom 1996. Uh, I will say 43 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I can tell you that much. Available. Glenn, you and I are both theater critics. Just tell us how long it is. That's all we ever want to know. Um, yeah, I don't. Uh... Okay. Well, um, you can take my word for it. 104 minutes. Um, I should go to the Wikipedia page. The Wikipedia is one of those things. It's all kinds of... Aha! Wikipedia aha, thinks Petri was born in Wisconsin. You trust those clowns? Uh, what was your guess again? 104 minutes. Mm, uh, by Price is Right rules, you would you get the big eh. Very close, though. 100 minutes. 100 minutes long. Okay. Well, <laughs> in and out. That's Surgical really strike. close. Yeah. Thank you. It's really close. Thank you. Is it within 4%? Is that how math works? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, okay. Petri, have a lovely dinner. Thank you so much. Thanks oh, again. Thank you. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemek. I wrote our silly theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark on vocals and keyboards and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Find out more about Casey at vitalvoicetraining.com and or caseyaaronclark.com. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. Our Instagram handle is a degree absolute, and if you leave us a five-star review on Apple, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use to listen to a degree absolute, along with your wildest prisoner take, we will read that take on a future episode. Thanks once again to the brilliant and hilarious Alexandra Petri for joining us on this week's episode. Remember that Glenn's book, the NPR podcast guide, how to start up plan a budget on any monetization of the highly influential friends of seven habits um yeah you you know where to buy books uh what's not in the book is what it's like to collaborate on a podcast with glenn weldon let's say that we have a uh, genial working relationship
It's no degree partial, it's a degree absolute.